Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 6. As we resume our study of Genesis, we'll look at the first eight verses today. Genesis 6, 1 to 8. You know, there are warning signs, and then there are warning signs. I saw this a few years ago when they uh, replaced the bridge in front of our house. When they first started working on it, they put a sign down at the corner that said, Road Closed. But everyone knew that you could drive through if you wanted to, just don't run into any equipment. And then one day, they removed the old bridge. Nothing left but a gaping hole from bank to bank. The road just ended. And suddenly, the sign became a different kind of warning. Road closed. Like I said, there are warning signs, and then there are warning signs. Well, throughout the scriptures, there are various kinds of warnings. and Caution, beware, watch what you're doing, listen to this. We ought to heed them all. But then there's a passage like our text this morning. It ought to be an all-bold print. For here is a warning of where the road ends abruptly and entirely. Something for us to think deeply about. Let me read it. First eight verses of Genesis 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found faith in the eyes of the Lord. These verses can div be divided, I think, into three truths that I want to share with you this morning, and we'll spend an inordinate amount of time on the first one, so don't get panicky when we just finish the first and it's almost time to be done. The first truth is this. Don't overstep God's boundaries. Don't overstep God's boundaries. Have you, have you noticed how quickly we tend to overstep boundaries? It, it starts when we're just little kids. Your mom or your dad sets a limit, how far you can go, what you can and cannot touch, an invisible line between brother and sister in the backseat of the car, whatever it is, some limit. And before you know it, for some of us, immediately, we just 
have to put our hand over the limit. We just have to step across the line to see what will happen. Actually, how mom and dad respond to those incidents determines a lot of how well and how easy it is for you to learn this truth about God. (laughs) For God, too, sets boundaries. He draws lines, and when he says no, he means no. You don't overstep God's bound. We're going to see that several times, I think, in this passage. Now, as we get into it, let me just admit to you that this is one of the hardest passages that I've ever worked on. Usually, if you really give yourself to study and put in enough hours and work hard enough and read everything you can find to read, you can come to some point where you can say with confidence, I know that this is the right interpretation of this passage. This morning, I admit, I have a lot of uncertainty about the most basic interpretive question in this text. But I also want you to know that this first point is true no matter which of the major interpretations you take. The point's still valid. It teaches us not to overstep God's boundaries. So let me just share the problem with you and tell you what the two major views are that uh, I think it's boiled down to and uh, why uh, one what, what or the other might be true. The big issue in this text is the question, who are the sons of God? In verse 2 and again in verse 4. We read here that as the population of the earth was growing, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married them. Who married whom? That's the question. Two major views. One is that the sons of God are angelic beings who who sinfully, who fell and sinfully entered into sexual relations with human women. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's pretty easy to dismiss. (laughs) Well, before you dismiss that as crazy, let me just tell you a little more. This is a very ancient interpretation of this text. As best I can tell, it's the oldest interpretation of this text. It is found in the reading of the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that Jesus used, that Paul used. It's spelled out in some detail in in an extra-biblical book called First Enoch, which is from about 200 years, 200 B.C. There we read, and this is some excerpts, but let me just read the account from First Enoch. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And they took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they, were, and they began to go in unto them, and to defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms and enchantments, and they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, and those, 
and there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. The account goes on to tell how God judged them, these fallen angels, binding them in prison in the uttermost depths of the earth. Now that's not scripture, that's a fallible writing of man, but it's a very ancient uh, interpretation of this text. There's several things that give that some credibility. One is that there are only three other places in the Old Testament that this exact Hebrew phrase, translated sons of God, is actually used. They're all three in the book of Job. And interestingly, all three of them refer to angelic beings. But of even more weight, in the book of Second Peter and in the book of Job, two books which are inspired scripture, it's clear that these writers, Peter and Job, were aware of this interpretation, this ancient interpretation, and might seem to endorse it. When we studied Enoch back in chapter uh, 5, we saw that Jude quoted some material about Enoch. He told us some about Enoch. You remember he talked, he used this little fourfold, little statement of fourfold use of ungodly. Uh, God will judge the ungodly for all their ungodly ways and, uh, and all their ungodly acts. And uh, you remember that uh, statement. And he was quoting from this book of First Enoch when Jude said that. So we know that Jude knows this book because he quotes from it. Well, just a few verses before that quote in the book of Jude, we read this verse. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned them at their home, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now he could be talking about the fall and falling of angels before the creation of the world or something we know nothing about, but the language he uses about how God bound them sounds exactly like First Enoch again, which he's about to quote eight verses later. Our Jude and First Peter putting their stamp of approval on this ancient interpretation. Virtually all the early church fathers thought, thought so. Jim Boyce thinks so. Many other writers think so. You see, as unnatural as it sounds to our ears, we cannot say for sure that's wrong. We don't understand how that would all work, but we can't say for sure that that's wrong. But may I suggest that even if that is the right interpretation, it still teaches us the same truth. We dare not overstep God's boundaries. In this interpretation, the boundaries in, in, in question would be the boundaries between heaven and earth, the boundaries between the divine and the human. Those are the boundaries that were breached. The relationship between these daughters of men and, and the spirit beings crossed the line into the demonic and produced monstrous results. 
They crossed the line. Stepped across God's boundaries. Now, I don't know if that's the right interpretation, but I know that we need to hear this these days. For we live in a day where spiritual boundaries between humans and superhuman spirits are being tested all the time. People are fascinated with the occult. They're fascinated with the demonic, with the new age spirituality, and there is a sexual overtone to much of it. If this interpretation is right, God is saying, don't cross these boundaries. Don't overstep what I've given to you as a human being, a child of God made in my image. You see, here we see a warning that our adversary is not just flesh and blood. It's not just ignorance or personality uh, uh, conflicts. or that. No, no, no. There's a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual battle that goes on. We wrestle against spirit wickedness, and that is true, whatever the interpretation of this text. Well, valid as that all may be, there's another interpretation of this text which I favor just slightly. <laughs> and that's this, that the sons of God are the descendants of the godly line of Seth, son of Adam. That the sons of God are the descendants of the godly line of Seth. Now this interpretation can't be traced back as far as the others, but it's certainly not new. It was the view of St. Augustine. It was the view of Martin Luther. It was the view of John Calvin. So you're not real far out on a limb when you take this view, just like you're not with the other view. The greatest reason <coughs> to accept this view, I think, the greatest reasons are those three primary rules of biblical interpretation. You know them, don't you? The three great rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Genesis, which we've studied, unfortunately there's been a few weeks in between with uh, our celebration of the resurrection, but uh, chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis, the verses just before our text, have been pointedly tracing two lines of descent. The descendants of the ungodly Cain, the murderer, who in spite of all of God's good gifts that allow them to build cities and develop culture, nonetheless just get worse and worse and worse. And the descendants of Seth, those who began to call upon the name of the Lord and have among them people like Enoch who walked with God. The godly and the ungodly, that's what's going on. The contrast is unmistakable. It's the major thing happening in this section, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so now we come to chapter 6 and these first eight verses, which are the close of this section. A new section begins in verse 9. We come to the close of this, of this section, tracing these two lines of descent, and here we read, and as people were increasing on the earth, something terrible happened. 
something awful began to happen that ruined everything. Suddenly, the sons of God, those calling upon the name of the Lord, began to see the attraction of the daughters of men, of the world, those descendants of ungodly Cain, and they began to cross the line and take as their wives the children of the ungodly. You see, it fits exactly with the point of the context. What God has been trying to keep separate, they began to corrupt. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, in which he describes two cities, the society of those who love God and the society of those who love self. Well, in that book, he has this to say about our verses in Genesis 6. He says, by these two names, sons of God and daughters of men, the two cities are sufficiently distinguished. For although the former, the sons of God, were by nature children of men, they had come into possession of another name by grace. And when they, the godly race, were captivated by the daughters of men, they adopted manners of the earthly to win them as their brides and forsook the godly ways that they had followed in their own holy society. In other words, they overstepped God's appointed boundary between his holy people and the world. Would God really bring the judgment of the flood? This total destruction of people? Would God really bring such judgment upon people simply because they began to intermarry with unbelievers? Well, we see people do that all the time, don't we? In fact, many argue against this view based on the fact that the punishment's too harsh. It doesn't fit. Well, may I suggest that it only sounds strange to our ears if we have not bothered to read God's word and to listen to what he says on this subject. Of the intermarriage of the children of God with the world. Let me just read you some passages from Deuteronomy 7. This is God's warning that he gives to his people as they're about to enter the land of Canaan. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Well, you know the story. They did anyway. And eventually God destroyed them. Sent the nation of Israel into captivity for, for 70 years in Babylon. And finally he, in his mercy, returned them to their land. And we read in Ezra 9, an, a, an event that happened after they were returned back to the land, after God had blessed them and restored and forgiven them. 
the leaders came to me, Ezra says, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra writes, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens, for we have disregarded your command. What command? The command, do not give your daughters in marriage. Do not uh, give your sons in marriage to the world. He finishes up, shall we again break your commands? It's after God's shown mercy. And intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices, would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant nor survivor? Where does Ezra get the idea that God is so passionate about the holiness of his people that he might destroy them entirely if they disobey him here? That's what Genesis 6 teaches. Don't overstep God's bounds. Oh, it's other places. It's in Nehemiah 13. It's in Malachi 2. It's in 2 Corinthians 6. God called his people to be holy. And that means separate from the rest of the world. We dare not overstep that. Now, I make quite a point of this because you young people, you parents of young people who are going to be choosing life partners, spouses, one of these days, need to understand this. In our day, it is thought common to date, to get serious about, to get engaged to, to even marry someone without ever asking the question, without any concern, ignorant of whether or not this person is a child of God. Not just a churchgoer, a child of God committed to the Savior. Some of you sitting here this morning have done this. You have terrible tales to tell. I know some of you. But for the sake of you who have not fallen in this hole yet, I want you to know in uncertain, in no uncertain terms, that God absolutely forbids you to enter into relationship with an unbeliever. God absolutely forbids you to enter into a relationship with an unbeliever. He did back then. He does now. He absolutely forbids it. You dare not cross that line. But she's so beautiful. That was the problem here. She was so beautiful. This is not just something about keeping the white race pure, 
keeping her Dutch heritage pure, or whatever heritage you have. That's not the issue. This is about keeping God's holy people holy. We marry, we date, only those who share our commitment to Christ. God has established a firm boundary. He's drawn the line in the sand, and you dare not step over it. Well, that's not the only boundary that was overstepped here. They apparently overstepped the boundary of monogamous marriage. In the Garden of Eden, God's pattern was crystal clear. One man, one woman for life. Back in chapter 4, ungodly Cain's descendant Lamech defied God and married two wives. That seems to be the practice here. They took whatever wives they wanted. They dared to violate God's boundaries. Do what they please. They also apparently crossed the line of violence. We, in the garden, God has established certain authority, certain dominion, certain lines of accountability. But in these days, in chapter 6, we read of the mighty men, the men of renown, the Nephilim. And there's a lot of question about who these people are. But according to the next verses that we'll read down to verse 9 following, they were not only corrupt, but these mighty men were filled with violence. Corruption and violence, crossing the line. As Derek Kidner writes, kind of summarizing this whole thing, he says, the point of this cryptic passage, whatever view we take, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil. With God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. You see, there are warnings, and there are warnings. And here's a big one. Do not overstep God's boundaries. Oh, there are lots of boundaries. This isn't the only. There are lots of boundaries that God has established for our peace and our safety. We couldn't even mention them all. Things which we will violate only to our own destruction. You see, it doesn't matter what the boundary is. If God says no, the answer is no. If God says stop, we stop. Why? Well, finally, that brings us to our second point. Because God destroys the wicked. God destroys the wicked. It it seems like everywhere I look, uh, I see some Noah's Ark thing. You notice that? You you, you see uh, Noah's Ark uh, motif for uh, children's rooms. You you, you see uh, wonderful little wooden animal toys. We have some in our house, little Noah's Ark toys. You, you, you see cute little Noah's Ark books for children. It's kind of like it's a mother goose tail. But none, none of those cute little things about Noah and the flood, none of those cute little things ever deal with the terrible reality of this time in history, which is that the wrath of the living God was revealed and unleashed on the earth. We're going to see more about it. But in verses 5 to 7, we're prepared for that. We're told why. Actually, there are two parts here. The Lord saw, in verse 5, and the Lord said. 
first of all, the Lord saw something, and it filled him with pain. Now, this is parallel to the, the creation account. You remember in the creation, the Lord saw all that he made, and he said, it is good. And now we read that the Lord sees all he's made, and it grieves him that he ever made it. He's filled with pain. Notice the description of the wickedness in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. What a statement. What a statement. Dr. Boyce suggests that there are three things that were true about their sin here, and about our sin, too. First of all, that sin is inward, not just external. Sin is not just a matter of bad behavior. Sin has to do with every inclination of the heart. The thoughts of the heart being evil. That's how God sees things. We, we, we say he's a murderer because he committed murder. God says he commits murder because he's a murderer in his heart. We spend so much time on the external, posturing to create the image we want, but God says, I see the corruption. I see that every inclination of the thoughts of your heart are evil, internal wickedness. Secondly, sin is pervasive because it comes from the heart. It influences everything else. That's why it says here, Every inclination of the thoughts of the heart are only evil. Now, no one thinks that you're as bad as you could be. I, I know better than that. You're not as bad as you could be. But nevertheless, the Bible makes it very clear that there is no part of us that is not corrupted. We may not be as wicked as we could be, but there's no part that's untainted by sin pervasive. It's everywhere. Have you ever noticed that? You could be right in the middle of a prayer and suddenly your thoughts go off into who knows what and you say, I just sinned against God while I was praying to him. It's pervasive because it comes out of the heart. Third thing, sin is continuous. They did only evil all the time. That sounds pretty bad. All the time? They only did evil all the time? Well, it sounds pretty bad unless you start keeping track of your own thoughts and your own motives and your own words. For you see, sin is always with us. Always with us. Here's one of the best descriptions of the doctrine of total depravity in the whole Bible. Sin that is inward as well as outward. Sin that is pervasive, it, it pollutes everything, and sin that is continuous, it never stops. It just keeps on polluting, it keeps on coming. And that's what these people were like. And to some degree, that's what every one of us is like. And the Lord was grieved by such sin. Notice the contrast. The heart of the wicked is filled with wickedness, and the heart of God is filled with pain. We read that God grieved. God lamented that he had ever even made this mess.
You ever think of your wickedness in those terms? God grieving that he ever made you? God looking and saying, I, I, I'm ashamed. When I see him hurt, it fills my heart with pain. What a, what a terrible indictment. But make no mistake, God is not just sitting in heaven and feeling bad and wringing his hands and saying, oh, I've made a big mistake, what am I going to do? No, God's not like that. We also see here that the Lord spoke. As he saw and felt pain, he spoke and revealed his plan. And it is a mind-boggling plan, folks. According to verse 3, he will remove his spirit from man. The spirit that hovered over the waters in the creation, the spirit that shielded the human race, will be gone. As Alan Ross calls this, the introduction to the uncreation. When God removes his spirit, I can hardly think of anything that, that is so frightening as God removing his spirit and leaving us in our sin. According to verse 7, God says, I will wipe mankind from the face of the earth. Jews, another place in the Old Testament, talk about wiping a plate, and wiping it clean, wiping every particle of everything out of it. To absolutely remove every bit, in this case, every human being, from the earth. And along with the humans, the animals, and the birds over which man has been given dominion. You see, in the book of Hebrews, we are warned that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for he is a consuming fire. We dare not forget that. In our buddy-buddy way with God, we must reckon with his holiness. That's seen here. His holy wrath. His holy anger against sin. God destroys the wicked. This isn't speculation. He did so back then. We're going to study about it. The flood. Unbelievable events. Destruction. He does so every day. Allowing the wicked just enough rope to hang themselves. He raises up and he also brings down. But most awesome is the truth that God will do so again in a total way. He will destroy the wicked. Back then he gave them 120 years of warning to repent. He's now given us 2,000 years of warning. But people just assume that 2,000 years means God's forgotten. Not so. In Matthew 24, we read Jesus saying, As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood 
came and took them all away. And that is how it will be, says Jesus, at the coming of the Son of Man. Oh, people may laugh and scoff at the thought of judgment, but that's just what God said would happen. That after a while, people would say, it's been so long, it's not going to happen. We read about it in 2 Peter 3, scoffers will come, scoffing, following their own desires. They'll say, where, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on just as it was from since the beginning of creation. Everything just goes. You've got to be kidding. But he says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, God is saying that judgment is as certain as the judgment that the flood, uh, of, the, the, of the flood happened. Because the flood happened, we know that the, the judgment has come. God has done it once. He will do it again. God will destroy the wicked. I caution us, dear Christian brother and sister. Christianity is quietly, slowly shifting its views. Judgment for sin is not something that's spoken of much. Eternal damnation certainly gets left out. We only hear about God's love and we hear about his blessing today. That's the emphasis of Christianity in our day. We almost never hear that his wrath is certain and that it's an awesome, frightening reality. But God didn't change. He certainly is more loving than you can ever imagine. But he is also still a consuming fire. The other side of his holiness is his wrath. Sinners cannot stand in his presence. And a day is coming like the day of the flood, only worse, when God will destroy every trace of the wicked from his earth. Are you ready for that? Do you know where you stand with God in light of that coming day? That, that, that's a too critical of a question to be ignored. This coming wrath is as certain as tomorrow's sunrise. The only question is, which day? Well, listen, this is a cheery sermon. Well, there is some cheer. For there's one more truth here. God surprises us with grace. God surprises us with grace. Derek Kidner says, here we see God's characteristic way with evil, to meet it not with half measures, but with the simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. And so in verse 8, 
this last phrase of our text. For the very first time in the Bible, although we've seen it evidenced before, but here the word is used. For the very first time in the Bible, we hear this most glorious word. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Make no mistake, it was grace. We're quick to want to talk about Noah's righteousness. We'll talk about Noah's righteousness next time. But that doesn't come till verse 9. That's in a whole new section of the book between verse 8 and verse 9. First, Noah found grace before we could ever talk about his righteousness. Notice that Noah did not earn grace. He found grace. Here at the deepest depth of sinfulness which the world has ever known, here in this darkest hour ever, when God is about to destroy every living thing from the face of his earth, this truth emerges. Grace. Grace. Noah found grace. Alan Ross makes sure we understand, if the word is given its proper meaning, it means that the recipients of grace actually deserve the judgment too. We're not talking about everybody deserved judgment except Noah. No. Everybody deserved judgment. But Noah found grace. And this morning, dear people, while the terror of God's wrath again hangs over this world, God has extended grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, this grace does not mean that judgment's not coming. Judgment is coming as certain as the flood came. But there's a safe place. There is a refuge from the coming wrath. And the refuge is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. On the cross, he endured the wrath of God against sin so that those who follow him in faith will not have to face that unbearable wrath. One day hordes of people will be crying out, my God, why have you forsaken us? And on that day, the only ones not forsaken will be those who have been joined to Jesus who on the cross endured such agony. This morning I call you to turn away from any smug self-sufficiency that I'm a pretty nice person, I'm a pretty religious person, I'm okay. And cast yourself upon the mercy, the grace, the surprising grace that is in Jesus. He alone can keep us safe and bring us to eternal life. Oh, you don't deserve it. You're as sinful as anyone else. But God extends grace in Jesus. Their warnings and their warnings. Here God gives us a very clear picture. What sin's like, how it grieves him, how he will certainly judge it. And in light of all that, he warns us in no uncertain terms, terms 
about the boundaries that we dare not cross. But he also reminds us of his grace in which we can be forgiven and live.